Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What what are you doing? What does it look like I'm doing? Are you urinating into my coffee cup? Uh, yes. Why? <laughs> I'm sending it off to be tested. I'm doing a urinalysis, Matthew. Welcome everybody to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. I'm Dr. Mike Todorovic. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Matthew James Lorraine Franklin Barton. And we are both here today to talk about... Your analysis. I think I spilled some water on the microphone. I, I think the audience heard you scrape, trying to <laughs> scrape it away. How are you, Matt? Good, thank you. Good, Sorry thank about you. ruining your coffee mug there. Yes. But at least, uh, at least we've got something to send away for testing. At least the days of having to taste it are past us. And we can Wait a minute. I wasn't supposed to drink that. No, no. It did taste nice and sweet. Well, that is a test that we can talk about. Oh. Sweetness of urine. Beautiful. Sounds delicious. <laughs> I'm sure everyone's looking forward to that. So today we're talking about a urinalysis, urinalysis, a test of the urine, testing many different things. Straight off the bat, why would we want to test our pee? Okay, so well, firstly, uh, I think urine is a, is a good indication of plasma, which is about 55% of our blood is um, plasma. So... Having a look at you, your urine would be a good indication of what's uh, in your blood. Um, and as we know, blood is an extracellular fluid and um, all our cells are bathed in extracellular fluid. So testing your urine would give you a good indication of what is happening around your cells. So if your cells aren't well, if they're producing things they shouldn't, if there are abnormal uh, amounts of things in your blood... Um, it will be picked up or hopefully picked up in your urine. Mm. Additional to that, it's quite convenient to take. It's not invasive like taking blood and it comes out all, <laughs> all the time. True. As in like litres. How many litres? About two litres. A day. Yeah, about two litres a day. So it's, so it's a good representation as to what is in our blood or isn't potentially. We know what gets filtered, so we should know what should and should not come out in the urine. Yep. It's easy to perform, so it's not invasive. It's cheap, 
So it's a really good sort of hypothesis generating thing to do where, okay, let's test your urine and see what's going on. And it may uh, allow for us to go in one particular direction or another direction, give us clues or hints as to what may be going on in regards to somebody's health. In the body, yeah. Okay, so when we look at your analysis, there are many things that could be uh, looked at. And I don't think we're going to go into all of those today. So what I mean is like you may go to the level of looking at the urine under a microscope. Uh, I don't think we're going to talk about that. There's also certain things you can do in, say, culturing urine. So if you have a suspicion that there may be certain microorganisms that are in the urine, again, we're not going to cover that. I think by and large what we'll do today is cover uh, what we call a dipstick test, which is uh, it's almost like um, testing the pool water. Actually, I do this at home in my backyard pool. Um, we have a kind of a dipstick. You drop it into the, the pool and then you read a colour change on a whole lot of different pads that are along the plastic strip. And do you pee in your pool? Uh, no, no. Okay. Good, that was a test. Um, Pass that test, Matt. And so that will give you an indication of, uh, again, parameters that are out of range like pH, and, and this is in terms of the pool, pH, chlorination, et cetera, et cetera. All right, no one cares about your pool. So we'll focus on the urinalysis. Uh the types of things we're going to go through today include something called specific gravity, pH, glucose, ketones, red blood cells, white blood cells, proteins, nitrites, and something called bilirubin and urobilinogen. But before we jump into those, it's important to probably highlight the fact that before you can do these specific tests, you can actually just look and smell and maybe you can taste the urine. Still in my cup. Yeah, yeah sorry. Uh, taste the urine, which we don't do anymore and I don't recommend anyone do that. But to see what the urine may look and smell and potentially taste like to give some more clues and hints. So let's just remove taste because n- none of us are going to taste it. Uh, but colour and smell. So if we, which one do you want to start with? Start with cl- colour. Okay. So, so, so if a person was to, to provide a sample of uh, their urine, mm. it would probably go into a little cup. Hopefully. Uh, if they're a patient and they maybe have a catheter in, it would go into a bag, which then the nurse usually would then take or a sample me, from. if it's me, it goes into a mug. Right. Now, there would be certain things that have to be done to ensure that there's not a contamination. Um, and usually I think they, they would suggest a midstream sample yeah. just so when the first bit of urine comes out, it probably does have a degree of contamination. This is probably more problematic when it comes to having microorganisms in it. Mm. So a, mid, a mid sample, a midstream sample would maybe ensure there's less uh, false positives. Yep, absolutely. So fill up a small cup and it's see-through besides a little sticker that will have the patient's details on it. And so straight away you can see the colour of it. So probably the normal looking urine would be straw coloured or very light coloured and that would suggest that the person is hydrated. Now why it's yellow, uh, that's probably to do with the breakdown products of red blood cells. So the heme part and then moving to bilirubin and then the breakdown from that. We can talk about that a bit later, but it's essentially from that pathway. Similar to why your poo's brown, same kind of thing. Mm. So generally speaking, your urine can be clear to cloudy 
and anything in between. It can be colourless to amber and, again, anything in between and a range of potential colours. Yep. So some other reasons why it might be uh, of different colours. So if it's a darker yellow, that will probably be suggestive of dehydration. So a person's just not drinking enough, enough fluid in their uh, intake. Uh, Red, so if the urine was to be red or pink, uh, it could indicate there's some blood in there. Mm. Um, So, But there's other things that may cause a change there. So drugs, certain drugs will affect that colour being red. And also foods like beetroot potentially could make it go pinky or red. And then brown, this would be probably quite distinctively different to... um, Amber. Yeah, yeah. So so amber is going to be like a very concentrated urine, uh, but brown is quite different. Yeah, and that could be indicative uh, of some proteins in there like myoglobin which would occur if you're getting maybe significant muscle breakdown. Yeah. So myoglobin is the hemoglobin of, of, of uh, muscle. Yeah. Oxygen-carrying unit. Now, there's, there's many other colours in between. Like it, you could go through a whole colour wheel and this could come down to um, certain drugs would discolour. Yeah. Um, certain foods, foods, drugs, proteins, bacteria, whole so bunch of stuff. We won't go through them all. No. Now then we can go to clarity. So te- technically that should be see-through. You should be able to see if I look through... I could see you on the the other side. Great example. Um, (laughs) Cloudy, if it's cloudy or it's got sediments in it, that could indicate there are... It's a pale ale maybe. Yep. (laughs) That could indicate that there are maybe an infection going on in the urinary tract. So a a UTI, you've got potential small stones coming through uh, or you may have too much protein. Now, if, if the urine becomes frothy... Good indication of protein. That would indicate there's there's more proteins in there that's excess of what it should be. And then finally, uh, this is probably a goes... Well, you, you potentially could do this, but I would imagine in many cases the, the cap is already on. But if you were in the process of putting the cap on, uh, or particularly if you took the cap off to then do your dipstick, mm-hmm. you may have um, the opportunity to smell it briefly. And if it has an offensive smell... It could suggest that there's it a came infection. From you? Oh, yep. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. And then the possibility if it's sweet. So I guess this could be also what we see with the fruity smell of a of a diabetic patient. Yes. So who has ketosis? Who's under yeah. ketosis? Yep. Yeah. yeah. But we'll get to that. So that's by and large the color, the clarity, and the odor, which yes. which, which you aren't can specific tests. We need to clarify that. that yeah. It's they're not specific tests. They're just uh, pretty rough and ready. Look, you know, smell, uh, don't taste. Uh, but the specific tests yeah. now that we can look at through a dipstick, uh, that's what we're going to move on to. Yeah, and just a couple of small points before we go through the list. Um, when taking the dipstick, obviously there's uh, a multitude of different colours on the dipstick. How many did you say? I didn't. Okay. <laughs> well, all, the, all those ones, I don't know, let's just say... Uh, Maybe about a dozen. Eight to... A bit under a dozen. Okay. Yeah. Eight to ten. They've... In those... In each one of those kind of uh, colour strips, um, there are... Or marker pads. There are essentially chemical reagents. So like enzymes. As well as dyes. Okay. So you've got to ensure that when you put your dipstick in, all of those marker pads are covered in fluid. And when, when you pull it back out of the... The, the urine, 
you have to ensure that it stays horizontal because if you get bleeding amongst the others, it will essentially corrupt the sample because there are enzymes in there and there's colour dyes. So it could run through and that could be a good reason for false negatives. Or positives. Or positives, yep. So um, I think that's about all. Just an interesting um, cause of a false negative um, is excessive amounts of vitamin C. So if you have have taken, you know, huge amounts of um, multivitamins, the, the absorptic acid could cause a corruption to um, particularly glucose and bilirubin. But we could potentially talk about that when we get to those parameters. Yep. And make sure that they're in date. So check the the bottle or the cylinder that the strips are in before you start your test. Sounds fair to me. Okay. All right, let's start with specific gravity. So All right, my, so what does this mean? So in my eyes it's basically the concentration of the urine. What stuff is present in the urine? Uh, and you can just eyeball it first of all, to see if it does look quite cloudy or not, which can give you a good indication whether there's more stuff dissolved in the urine or not. Now, it's giving you an indication of what's called the osmolality of the urine. So this is, again, the concentration of stuff in there. The reference that you should use is that of water, which has uh, a specific gravity of 1. Is that deionized water? Um, Probably. I would assume it's just so, pure water. So water with nothing in it. Yes. Mm. Would it's have, one, is one. Would have a specific gravity of one. So that tells you how clear that is. Yeah. And as you start to add things, which may be ions, salts, for example, proteins, whatever it may be, as you add them in, it's going to make it more concentrated and therefore the specific gravity goes up. So generally speaking, a specific gravity, and this is quite variable depending on what papers you read, but a specific gravity usually sits between 1.003 and 1.03. Mm-hmm. So they're the upper and lower boundaries. Anything lower than 1.003, it's too dilute, not concentrated enough. Anything okay. above 1.03, it's too concentrated. Okay. So what types of things do you want to start with more concentrated or less concentrated? Uh, go, go low to begin with. All right. So if you've got a value that's less than 1.003 mm-hmm. on the dipstick. What could it be an indication of? Well, as I said earlier, it um, this whole test is a good indication of your plasma. So you would hope that the specific gravity is in the ballpark of what your plasma is. So if it's got less stuff in than your plasma, I guess you're either overhydrated mm. Or maybe you've got certain things going on with your kidney where it's just flushing through too quickly. Yeah, so generally speaking, it's it's about hydration status. But there's obviously going to be other factors that come into play. So if it's lower than, point, uh, lower than 1.003, overhydrated, higher than 1.03, dehydrated. But like you said, there's other things that can make it seem as though it's overhydrated or dehydrated depending on the fluid that's moving through. So if, for example, it is below 1.03, it could simply be you are overhydrated, you've had too much fluid. Uh, It could indicate something like diabetes insipidus. Mm. So how's that different to the other diabetes? So in diabetes mellitus, which is sweet sweet urine, sugar, sweet urine, uh, you've got hypoglycemia, so increased blood glucose, and that increased blood glucose translates to increased urine glucose. Yep. Right? Uh, but in this case, we don't have that. 
diabetes insipidus actually doesn't really have anything to do with glucose. No. So it's an indication that there's too much urine, that's uh, too much fluid that's mm. actually being filtered and passed through. Yeah, so usually I think from my understanding it's there's a problem up in the brain in with reference to uh, antidiuretic hormone yes. secreted and as the as the hormone would suggest it's antidiuretic which mm. would mean it's against being a diuretic, right? Yes, that's right. So holding on to water. And so if you had this condition, it's um a lower amount of this for whatever reason, either being secreted or it's not working properly. And therefore, uh, you just keep peeing. And so these these patients would just be urinating all day. That's right. Or excessively, right? Yes. And so they're going to become dehydrated eventually, but their urine would be um, have a low specific gravity. Exactly right. So that's diabetes insipidus blocking antidiuretic mm. hormone uh, for, like you said, whatever reason, maybe a tumour or whatever it might be, right? Um, when when we look at a value that's above 1.03, you could be dehydrated. That's probably the most common example. But you may have too many things dissolved in the fluid itself. could be too many ions. It might be proteins. It might be other stuff. And that's important to note because what we need to say, and we probably should say it earlier rather than later, is that none of these individual tests are... Uh, diagnostic by themselves. You should use them in collaboration with each other and one test informs another test and you may get a positive reading for one and a negative mm. reading for another and that gives you information. Or you might get two positive readings for two separate uh, tests that we're going to talk about and that might inform you to go down a particular path. So if, it's, if the specific gravity is too high... Well, you might be able to correlate this with proteins, for example, and go, oh, there's a lot of proteins in the urine. That's probably why the specific gravity is high, for example. Or the glucose is right up there mm. with this urinalysis. So maybe the specific gravity is high because I've got too much glucose in the urine itself. Or maybe we've got the opposite of what's happening in diabetes insipidus where you're blocking antidiuretic hormone, right? Yep. It could be syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone this is where you release too much antidiuretic hormone and that stops urine from being produced and makes it more concentrated yep and yep. therefore the specific gravity goes up so again the test doesn't tell you which of these it is but it can give you an indication that it may be one of these and do you do you know from the top of your head whether um, bigger molecules would have a greater effect so let's say a protein is a big thing or a cell is a big thing. If that was in a fluid, would that have a greater effect than if you had the same number of, say, ions? I'd assume so because often the specific gravity is, and I could be wrong here, is measured through light refraction. Now, it's not with the dipstick, mm. but I think the, the most accurate way of doing it would be through light refraction through the actual fluid itself. Uh, and so I would say that, yes, large molecules would alter the specific gravity as much as smaller molecules would. Okay, so like proteins in your urine mm. maybe have a greater effect than, say, if you had a whole lot of um, sodium. I don't know if it would have a greater effect, but it would alter the specific gravity. Okay. An I interesting point is that studies have been able to correlate the specific gravity in a dipstick with being appropriately hydrated. So U-hydration, which is normal hydration mm. level. So we always talk about what's the appropriate level of hydration. And some studies state that being having a um, urine osmolality 
of 500 milliosmoles per liter, that is telling you that you are well hydrated. So you are right in that good spot. So 500 milliosmoles per kilogram, I don't know if I said per liter, but per kilogram, that's your urine osmolality. That's what it should be to be hydrated. Now, a specific gravity of 1.013 tells you that you're well hydrated. And so that's an interesting point. So because there's no other really good way to determine whether somebody's hydrated or not. There's no good test for this. However, you can look at the specific gravity and that can tell you whether somebody is hydrated or not hydrated. Okay. Uh, is that enough? I you think, think so. Yeah. Okay. So take home point. It's really a good indication of hydration level, but um, it could also be an indication if your kidneys aren't working as they should, particularly for the reabsorption aspect, because some things you throw into the urine, you want to grab back before you put it in the urine or you put it into the filtrate before you want it to completely go into the toilet. You can, your kidney tries to pull some things it likes back. Yeah, it might, so be, it might be a, a good point to state to people that your kidneys or specifically your nephrons are receiving one litre of blood per minute that it needs to filter. Now, it filters a lot of this fluid coming through but actually throws 98% of what it filters back into the body. So you only pee out 1% to 2% of what you filter, which ends up being about 2 litres per day, which tells you you're filtering like over 200 litres per day, right? Around about 198 to 200 litres per day. So we know what should be in the urine and we know what should be thrown back into the blood, right? Or, and we know what can move through the filtration membrane and what can't move through the filtration membrane as well. So that allows you to start being more specific too. But we'll get there when we start talking about some of the larger molecules like proteins, for example. But we should now move on to pH. What do you think? Yep. So pH is the concentration of hydrogen ions. That's all it is. That's all it measures is the relative concentration of hydrogen ions. Our blood should be between 7.35 and 7.45. That's our blood... But our urine, do you know what the, the range for our urine pH is usually? Uh, five to nine? Yeah, around about 4.5 to eight is the range, but it usually sits between five and a half to six and a half. Okay. So slightly acidic. Now, what? So generally speaking, if your urine's above seven, we say that it's alkaline. And if the urine's below five, we say it's acidic. Acidic. So which one do you want to first focus on? Because it's this is highlighting that your urine pH can change far more significantly than your blood pH. So right. you've got buffers in your blood yep. that resist drastic pH changes because the pH is important for appropriate functioning of proteins and enzymes, for example. But in your urine, that doesn't matter. So your pH can drastically change and things can do this like the foods that you eat, for example... Um, the amount of carbon dioxide floating around, the amount of hydrogen ions, the amount of bicarbonate ions and so forth. Mm. So let's focus on maybe alkalinic blood, for uh, alkalinic urine first. So, so the high number. Yeah, something above a pH of 7. What could potentially be causing this? Any idea? Uh, well, the most obvious is because you, you did say that it... What did I say? Uh, it's a <laughs> representation of... The, the plasma, your urine, sorry, your blood plasma. So if you had a state where your blood was alkalytic then or basic, it would 
be reflected, I would assume, in your urine as well. So if you had metabolic alkalosis, so your blood pH is slightly above what it should be, then potentially your um, urine will be reflected the same way. Yep, that's true. So maybe it causes of metabolic, this is the top of my head, metabolic acidosis, uh, alkalosis, should I say, if a person had vomiting, Yep, excessively vomiting, so yep. they they're getting rid of a lot of HCl, hydrochloric acid, in their stomach. They're losing hydrogen ions in their body, or probably I'd also imagine if they took a drug that's uh, a what's it called? Alkaline therapy. Yeah, what's it called? Uh, like say for reflux. Oh yeah, a proton pump inhibitor. No, no, more the chemical. Uh, I've got a mind blank. You know, you just want to de-acidify. Deacidify? There we go. Okay. What's it called? You know, just a thing you get... Like Gaviscon? Yeah, that stuff. Okay, like bicarbonate. Yeah, what are they called? Not sure. There's a a name for them. Anyway, it'll come to me. So that would also potentially, if you had excessive amounts of those... I mean, antacid. Antacid, there we go. Uh, That would cause... (laughs) I I thought you were asking (laughs) something more specific instead of antacid, which means opposing acid. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, because the ingredients in those things, whether it's a tablet like you chew or a a liquid that you drink, um, they have a lot of bicarbonate like things in it, right? Yeah, which mops up hydrogen ions. And then so that could, if you were to have excessive amounts of that, could cause an alkalotic Alkalytic. state. Yep. So Which would be reflected in your urine, right? Yes. So you're right. Anything that's resulting in some sort of metabolic alkalosis can be represented as an alkalinic pH in your urine. So that can be vomiting, removing all the hydrogen ions, gastric suction, removing hydrogen ions from your stomach, alkaline therapy, even diuretic therapy. Right. So that that's just making you pee more. Making you pee more, but it also changes the hydrogen ion concentration because of removing sodium and then you get a potassium exchange that occurs. So when you pee out a lot of sodium, at some point you can pee out a lot of hydrogen ions as well. Uh, sorry, it, it swaps hydrogen yeah. ions over, so you don't pee out as much hydrogen ions, I should say, sorry, and that can make your urine alkalinic. Um, a vegetarian diet is probably the most common really? cause. Yes, because like Vegan or vegetarian? Vegetarian, because it's about not having meat, because meat is made out of proteins, and proteins are made up of amino acids, right? So if you eat meat, it's ultimately going to break down into amino acids, and your urine will be acidic because of so proteins. Even, so even protein, uh, plant proteins? Uh, well, yeah, I'd assume so, but you you got to eat a It's just not on the same scale, or, or is meat proteins got more... Are they more acid, acidic? Well, I think amino people, acids. people will eat half a kilogram of steak, which is filled with amino acids. And I don't know whether people are ingesting an equivalent quantity with plant proteins. Oh, you okay. can, you can, and absolutely that's going to change the pH of your urine. It's just proteins in general. Didn't and you order a half a kilo of steak the other day on takeaway? Yeah, I did actually. It was I've right. never heard of a takeaway steak. Well, look, I was hungry. I had a lot of work to do and I was at work and the restaurant here at work uh, makes steaks. <laughs> Takeaways. So I thought I'd take it. Um, did, you, did you do your analysis afterwards? Yeah, I peed in your cup again. Oh, that's what that was. Yes. Okay. Sorry, that's the other cup that's sitting there. <laughs> um, so another thing that can cause and probably another very common cause is urea splitting bacteria. 
They're my favourite type of bacteria. Actually. Sure, they are. <laughs> so urea is a byproduct of protein metabolism, right? So if you're, and again, I told you that proteins will metabolize, they will produce urea, amino acids, makes your urine. Isn't acidic. isn't isn't the urea the safer way of exporting the ammonia part or the amino, amino part of yeah. the, of the amino acid? So you can't just split it in your blood and then throw ammonia into your blood because that's dangerous. Yes. So our liver changes it for us into urea. Is that right? Yep, that's right. So are you saying that this bacteria just utilizes the urea we make or they do their own urea? No, it takes our urea and okay. splits it so that the urea, which is slightly acidic, is no longer slightly acidic because it's changed its chemical composition. Okay. And so it reduces the acidity, or I should say increases the alkalinity of the urine. So let me just recap for alkalinic urine, right? Yeah. Above a pH of 7, a common thing is urea-splitting bacteria, uh, vegetarian diet or lack of protein within the diet, diuretic therapies, vomiting or gastric suction, or alkaline therapies. So anything that can cause a, an acidic urine, which is a pH of below 5, is usually something causing some form of metabolic acidosis, and that can include too much proteins within the diet. Right? Again, a lot of meat ingestion, a lot of protein ingestion. Okay. Um, but again, it's not always this. Like carbon dioxide, we know, can cause hydrogen, produce hydrogen ions yeah. right? through the bicarbonate buffer reaction. So, you so if, you, if you had a respiratory acidosis as well, yes, that would cause it. So if you're retaining CO2. Yep, it would want to try and get rid of it somehow. And if you can't breathe off the carbon mm. dioxide to breathe off the acid, uh, you may need to pee it out. So yep. the thing that listeners should remember or listener should remember <laughs> is you've got respiratory-based um, acid-based balances and meta- and uh, renal-based acid-based balances. Or metabolic. I think metabolics is safe because it, right. it can happen elsewhere, not just the kidneys. I know, but I was just saying that long-term, your kidneys play a role in helping manage pH balance. Yeah, I think the, I think the kidneys is the only place that can really get rid of bicarbonate, whereas your, your lungs have the capacity to... Um, Get rid of the CO2. That's right. Mm. Yes. So your kidneys will and, change And they do pH. a lot better, right? So th- your yeah. lungs do it in seconds to minutes, whereas your kidneys will take hours to days. That's right. Exactly. Um, so another interesting point is that altering the pH of your urine can actually help eliminate drugs that are weak electrolytes because, and we've spoken about this when we did pharmacokinetics, Kinetics? Was it Still waiting to, no, we haven't done dynamics. Right. So. Pharmacokinetics is that a lot of drugs are either weak acids or weak bases, right? And So aspirin's a weak, weak acid. Yes, yeah, so salicylates are weak acids. So here's a good example. Um, if you want to increase the excretion of aspirin or salicylates, you make your urine a little bit more alkaline. And so if you think about it, we spoke about it again in that previous podcast, Changing the pH of the environment of an acid or a base will make it more likely to become Conjugate. an ion. Yeah. yeah, that's right. right? So if it's, an, if it's slightly acidic, make Ionized. the urine slightly basic mm. and it's more likely to donate the proton, right, the hydrogen ion, and it will become an ion. Yep. And that means it's more dissolvable in water, which means it's more likely to be peed out and less likely to be reabsorbed at the tubules. Yeah. And you can do the opposite with weak bases, for example. So... Again, changing the urine can change the excretion of electrolytic or electrolyte-based drugs. 
which most drugs are. Sounds good. Uh, so other things that could cause metabolic acidosis would be um, sepsis. So if you, if you were or if you were in a state where you needed to pr- you were starting to produce a lot of lactate because lactate's oh, right, it's yeah. not lactic acid. Yeah, I don't think we produce lactic acid. So if you were Bacteria to pro- do, but we there's no evidence that humans produce lactic acid. We do produce lactate and we do produce hydrogen ions through exercise or anaerobic respiration. So if you were to go into some kind of shock, hypovolemic shock or even septic shock, then your cells in your body are running out of um, blood perfusion. Yeah. And then they have to go into an anaerobic form of respiration. And yes. They, and they produce lactate, let's say, and lactate is a acid, which then would get... No, lactate's a base. Oh, so so then how does the how does that then correlate to so the acidosis? Because the acids produce through uh, certain utilizations of ATP. So this is the 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 big question that's happening is that um, we thought that when you undergo anaerobic respiration, no oxygen, that pyruvate turns into lactic acid, and then lactic acid turns into both lactate and hydrogen ions. Because the definition of an acid is it reduce, releases a hydrogen ion and a conjugate base, and lactate's the conjugate base, right? But what we now know is that pyruvate turns into lactate directly, which is a conjugate base, and the hydrogen ions are produced elsewhere. Uh, so, okay. sepsis, for example, muscle damage, um, anaerobic respiration will produce hydrogen ions through that process of producing ATP through an anaerobic method but it's not through lactate. Okay. Lactate's actually there to mop up the hydrogen ions right, okay. and make things better. Uh, okay. Uh, well, in any case... Well, regardless, the lactate's produced at the same time as the yeah. hydrogen ions. That's the thing. Uh, so that's why it's called lactic acidosis yeah. uh, because we thought it was from lactic acid, but now it's not. We still use the term lactic acidosis because it still demonstrates the same point. Both lactate is produced and hydrogen ions. Yeah, it's gonna be. It's gonna take a while to change that terminology, isn't it? I know. Uh, we knew this fifteen years ago. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then DKA, which we will come to when we do. What's ke- that stand for? Uh, diabetic ketoacidosis. Uh, so the ketones in this case, I guess, are acidforming, um, which we'll talk about when we get the ketones. And then I guess fasting fits into that as well. So if you were in a heavily fasted or even starvation state, then you might. But that's probably also goes with the ketoacidosis. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's about all. There, there, there could be cases where you may have a different um, pH within your blood, but at the kidney level, you may have some degree of renal tubule dysfunction. Oh, yeah. And the way that those cells are processing either their acid or their bicarbonate could yeah. then have an effect on the urine. So if you were to have different types of renal tubular acidosis within the tubular cells of your nephron, that would... Uh, affect the way that maybe you excrete or absorb or um, either the hydrogen or the bicarbonate. And if you're expelling a lot of bicarbonate in your urine, that's obviously going to make it basic, even if you were acidic in your blood. So that could have an effect. So take-home message for pH is that many things can affect it. So it alone doesn't necessarily tell you a lot. But with other tests, it can be informative. I think, like you said, it's a good hypothesis driving um, test. So it gives yeah. you an indication that there's something awry and therefore you will have to do further investigations. Yep. Glucose. Everyone's favourite, favourite, most delicious micronutrient. Goodbye 
proteins and amino acids. Once well, you're on the keto diet, they, those people aren't fans of them. Uh, those people, Matthew. Well, those person, uh, those persons that like a keto diet. We have a lot of listeners who love the keto diet, where they don't touch any sugar and all they ingest is butter in their coffee. And really, is that a thing? <laughs> yeah, people have butter in their coffee what, in place of milk or together no, with, with milk? milk. With milk, they're trying to increase the fats as much as possible. Okay. Um, for what reason, I don't know. Because they think ketone production is healthy. I'm going to piss a lot of people off by saying the. It's appropriate because it's the right topic today. True. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, glucose is an important micronutrient. Macro. Nope. Carbohydrates, macro. Glucose is micro. And it's an important micronutrient that our body needs to produce ATP. One glucose molecule will help us produce around about 36 ATP molecules. Very efficient to produce ATP. And the brain only wants to use that glucose. So, But our body makes it, so we don't need it in a diet. Well, you're entirely right. And that's the thing, is that that's how the keto works, is that they're saying that... We don't need glucose to utilize glucose, strangely enough, for energy. We can turn non-carbohydrate-based sources into glucose, glucose substrates, mm. like glucose 6-phosphate and pyruvate, for example, to make energy. And that's what fatty acids and glycerol can do. That's what amino acids can do. That's what ketones can do. But it's just a roundabout way of doing the same thing that glucose does. Anyway, that's besides the point. Let's focus on glucose. In your blood, you should probably have... The concentration of glucose floating through your bloodstream at around about four to six millimoles per liter. All right. What's that in milligrams per liter? Uh, hundred and six milligrams per deciliter. Hundred and sixty. No, hundred and six. I'm pretty sure. Hundred and six. Yeah. Precisely. Okay. Think so. I should uh, look. I'm very so, good at maths. So between between. So the, the the standard tests if you're going to take blood for sugar or sugar blood sugar levels, um, you know, like the finger prick test, yeah, um, for diabetes or thereabouts, is about four point five to six millimoles per liter. Yes. So that's usually how it's the the units that are used. Mm-hmm. But to for this particular one, we're, we're going to shift to milligrams per hundred mils. Okay. Because that's how it's kind of measured. That's how it's equated to in your urinalysis. Yeah. All right. Sorry, keep going. Uh, no, I was all I was going to say is that glucose is a molecule, a micronutrient. It's small enough to be filtered at the glomerulus, at the nephron. So it does go from the blood into the tubes of the nephron. So uh, it can get across the strainer. Very easily goes through the strainer. But what should happen is if you ingest an appropriate quantity of glucose, usually under 180 milligrams... Mm per 100 mils, also known as per deciliter, if you ingest less than that, we can usually shuttle 100% of that glucose back into the body. In the nephron. In the nephron. Mostly at the proximal convoluted tubule, right? Yeah, I think all at the proximal convoluted tubule. And the way I think about it is, if, for example, a football game's just finished at a stadium and you've got 10,000 people leave the stadium, you need enough buses to take those 10,000 people home. I think you use this analogy for I use the, it for everything. Yeah. All right. Yeah. But it's no great. No wonder your students are confused because 
in their short answer, they always talk about buses, buses and sporting events. Oh, look, <laughs> it's, if, it, if it works, it works. But if you've got now 50,000 people in the stadium, they overpack the stadium. I think you... It's, it's not We're not having a problem with that at all at the moment in Australia with COVID. Very true. Uh, empty stadiums. Yes. Uh, I think... Too many buses. It's No, no, this is the thing. Um, the, glu- uh, the people are glucose. So you've got too many people, too much glucose at the stadium, but you've still got the same amount of buses. So people are left over. Those people just funnel off into the streets, which... Cause a, rock, cause a riot. Cause a riot. Start start smashing stuff up. So anyway, the point I'm saying is that if you've got too much glucose in your bloodstream, it not all of it gets reabsorbed back into the body. It's going to come out in your pee. Okay, what's the threshold? What's the renal threshold of glucose? Uh, I think it's 180 milligrams per deciliter. That's Brill- the threshold. Brilliant. Yeah. So anything over that, you then get spillover into urine. All right. And you'll start to get glucose in your urine. So what does that mean practically? Well, I mean, let's just say if it was a one-off, if you just drank a can of cola, I'm not going to say which one. Um, I'm impartial here. Um, do, do we know how much sugar's in there? I should have really checked. I think it's... Uh, 100 grams per litre. 100 grams per litre. So if you were to drink that... So um, a litre of Coke. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. It would exceed... Do human beings drink litres... Uh, <laughs> or, or <laughs> yeah, people people get well. It's actually in Australia, one point two five, I think, liters. Yeah. All so, I remember is um, that movie, and I everyone's going to be yelling at me right now through their headphones um, about the the cops. The it's very funny. Dumb and Dumber. No, there's father is a, a, a larger uh, uh, super troopers. Is it called super troopers? Yeah. Anyway, he orders a liter of cola. I think that's leader a of cola, and then the, the the kid behind the counter goes, "Do we have leaders of cola?" And I think uh, it's a quart. I think it's a quart in America, isn't it? I don't know. I think I don't four, order anything in I that a, size. I think a gallon in America is ballpark four liters. No one's ordering a gallon of coke, are they? No, but I'm just saying a quarter of a gallon is a liter. Don't like the big slurps. Yeah, the big gulps. Big gulps. What are they? I think they're close to a liter. They've got to be more than a liter. They're big though. They're like Ridiculous. you need another cup holder for those. You do. You need another bladder to hold those. <laughs> anyway, so if you're ingesting a liter of a liter of cola, that's what was it? A hundred grams of sugar per liter. Yeah. So you ingest a whole liter. You've now got a hundred grams of sugar in your bloodstream, yeah. and your bloodstream's s- six liters. Six liters. So you end up having how much floating through your bloodstream? A hundred divided by six. All right. So that's fifteen. 15 grams per liter per liter oh so what's that deciliter what's that yeah. milligrams per deciliter oh that's that's in excess oh okay so you've got more than the threshold yeah, yeah. so if i drink a liter of cola yeah oh definitely i will have a lot of and then do the dipstick test yeah you give it 20 minutes yeah. i'm gonna have a lot of glucose in that dipstick test yeah and you would be diabetic for that point in time Yes, because the definition being hypoglycemia. Yeah, diabetes is just meaning uh, to siphon. Diabetes mellitus, uh, to siphon uh, honey. So your urine's honey-like. Thank you. That's <laughs> that's how it was defined in those days because it was sweet. Because they tasted it. Opposed to insipidus, which was not. Yes. Mm. 
Still oh. diabetes because you're siphoning a lot of fluid. Gotcha. Yeah. So siphoning, so producing, so polyuria producing a lot of urine, that's yeah. diabetes, but the sweetness or non-sweetness is the suffix being mellitus, sweet like sugar, or insipidus being, what's insipidus mean? I uh, think insipidus meant that it was a, a like a, a problem. Maybe amount. Anyway, um, so continuing on from that, if you were to have glucose in your urine, because it's a big molecule, uh, it's probably going to take water with it as well. So that's part of the reason for why you get polyureas because um, you've got more things dissolved in your urine, urine, therefore we know water usually goes with solutes, therefore we get osmosis, yeah. osmotic gradient change, an osmotic diuresis, then we're going to get polyuria with it. Now, you'd also assume by having glucose in your urine, it's going to be, as we said in the first parameter, you're going to get a change in your specific gravity as well. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. So you'll have both glucosuria, glucose in your urine, uh, which generally you don't have yep. unless you've ingested a lot of glucose, and polyuria because it's pulling water with it. Uh, and you'll have hypoglycemia because you've got increased blood glucose levels. Now, this doesn't mean you are a diabetic. No, no, that's right. I didn't, And I didn't mean that when you said it, but you no, could, no, just, you could you be did. in a state of that. Yes. But so you're not a diabetic diagnosed with diabetes. So either you've just ingested a lot of sugar, you've had just had a meal, for example, or you could be a diabetic who's not managing your diabetes well with your insulin, right? And often it's type 1 diabetics. Um, with the insulin, yeah. With the insulin. But, uh, or, it, I mean, type 1, type 2 diabetics, both are hyperglycemic um, at various times. And so if you are a diabetic and it's not being controlled well, either through diet or through medication, the glucose can be present in the urine. Yeah. Right? So one indication of glucose in the urine, either the meal, second indication indication being maybe you're a diabetic. Yeah. Right? Yep. Okay. And and, and, and again, some diabetic uh, medication could throw the the urine uh, glucose out. Uh, and, and certain kidney diseases, renal diseases may have an effect. So if you were... Just working back from principles, if you were to have certain uh, dysfunctional tubular cells, let's say in the PCT, that's yeah. the buses, if you yeah. started blowing buses up, then you're not going to be getting <laughs> people... Or maybe they just had flat tyres. That's better. <laughs> As opposed to you doing some sort of speed analogy. Okay. Um, All right, ketones. Can I just mention one quick thing? Oh, um, I suppose so. With the, I think the way that the, um, the actual order of these parameters are on the dipstick is by time. Time in regards to what? So how quick the enzymatic reaction occurs between the urine and that particular yeah. um, pad. Yeah, we're not presenting it in that order. Yeah, we're so presenting it in a more logical... Some are very quick. Order. Some, you know, like for instance, glucose is done in 30 seconds, but then some will take up to two minutes to do that analysis or that reaction. So That's right. just, just to mention that quickly. All right. Ketones. Here's the important thing about ketones is that they are an energy source that can be used. They can be turned back into acetyl-CoA, uh, which is what they're made from. All right, here's how it all works real quick. All right, Use glucose to turn into pyruvate. That's called glycolysis. Pyruvate turns into acetyl-CoA. That jumps into the mitochondria, undergoes the Krebs cycle. In every cell but red blood cells. That's right. Undergoes the Krebs cycle, which produces a whole bunch of NADH, uh, and FADH2. So they're just like electron carriers? That's right. They they carry these electrons to the mitochondrial membrane 
throw those electrons to the electron transport chain that play hot potato with the electrons, which produces a proton pu- uh, a proton gradient. Yep. That proton gradient is hijacked to produce ATP. Right. So that's where the predominantly most of the ATP is produced in the mitochondria, right? Exactly right. Now, if you don't have glucose, which is the, the starting molecule for this whole process, your body goes, how am I going to produce all this ATP? So what it tries to do is, one, one of the substrates within the Krebs cycle, called oxaloacetate, jumps out of the cycle and turns back into glucose. But what this means is one of the important substrates is missing, and it's the su- oxaloacetate binds with acetyl-CoA to produce one of the important molecules for the Krebs cycle. But oxaloacetate's gone. So acetyl-CoA is just sitting there without its friend. So what the hell's happening? And more and more acetyl-CoA start to accumulate. And so they go, oh, we might as well just hang out with each other. And they snap together all these acetyl-CoA's. And what do you produce when you snap acetyl-CoA's together? Ketones. Okay. And now this ketone can jump out of the liver, which a lot of this process is So what you spoke about just is owning the liver. Hepatocytes? Uh, no, but predominantly in the hepatocytes. So other cells can do this? Correct. Oh, I now, always thought it was just the liver. It's predominantly the liver. Okay. Now, the, the ketones can jump out and they can cross the blood-brain barrier. How right. many ketones do you have? Uh, I, think there's th- I think there's probably three different types of ketones, mm. but I think hy- uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate is the... F- no? Acetoacetate? Is that the functional one? Okay. Anyway... It doesn't oh, matter. sorry. I was meaning which which is the one that's read in the uh, urinalysis. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So you have acetone. All right, wait. Let me get to that point because I haven't finished what ketones do first. They jump out of the liver, liver. into the bloodstream yeah. and they can cross the blood-brain barrier. Now, there's a lot of uh, glycolysis substrates that can't cross the blood-brain barrier, but ketones can. Then once they're in the brain, they can turn back into acetyl-CoA and then be used to produce ATP the same way glucose would be. Right, so why are we telling you this? And we'll get back to what you were saying about the types in the test. The presence of ketones in your urine may be an indication that you don't have enough glucose present in your diet, for example. So, so low carbohydrate, low carbohydrate. So your body is producing ketones. Would it also happen if you just overloaded yourself with fats? Exactly right. So you could go on a keto diet which is overloading yourself with, with fatty acids and glycerol and even amino acids, right? They can mm-hmm. all feed into this pathway to produce ketones. Uh, but also people take ketone supplements as well. What's that? It's literally like acetoacetate. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, and wow. so they take those supplements as an energy source. It's sort of just like taking gl- uh, little bits of sugar, like little bits of glucose. You're taking acetoacetate. They're just feeding into different parts of the okay. energy cycle. Um, so, what would generally happen is ketones will be present in the urine for any one of those reasons. You don't have enough glucose in your diet. You got too much fats in your diet. Maybe too many amino acids potentially in your diet, or you're taking ketone supplements. Or the other thing is you don't have insulin. Exactly, insulin is a really strong negative regulator of ketone production. If you've got, and, and remember, insulin's released when glucose is present. Yeah. So they, they, they work together in a healthy person. But if somebody has diabetes. Specifically type 1. Correct. No insulin's been produced. What, which means that effectively the glucose doesn't exist because it can't be utilized properly. Can't, can't get into cells. Ex- to, to undergo this whole process yeah. we spoke about through glycolysis, pyruvate, blah, 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 blah. So without the presence of insulin, ketones can be produced. But if insulin's present, 
it's an indication that amino acid uh, that glucose is present and it's a strong negative regulator of ketones don't produce ketones you do produce a little bit but it's a strong negative regulator okay so it can be an indication as well that the person is not producing insulin did i get that point across well enough do you think uh yeah okay cool that's not uh not so reassuring. Did, you, did you talk about the three ketones though? i did not no you can Oh, uh, no, you know this better. I don't. Uh, in terms of the urinalysis or just generally? Oh, generally, yes. Just, but just, to, gen- just to generally. Well, all I know is that you've got beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate. What's the third one? Acetone. Oh, yeah, acetone. That um, gives you the smell, doesn't it? Correct. I don't think acetone is... One of them is not a true... Yeah, I think it's acetone. ...ketone. But you're right. When you snap together all these... Because it's a volatile acid, so you breathe it out. And it smells sweet. Yeah. Yeah, like sickly sweet. Like the aftershave you always wear. <laughs> so the, then these ketones, if you are in these states like DKA, diabetes, ketoacidosis, or if you were starving, or I don't know, is it another cause? Maybe if you were a real strict keto diet. Yep, or you're on keto subs. Oh, oh yeah, or keto subs. Um, then that would be passing into your urine, but I think only one of them will react within the strip itself for ketones. Yeah. And I think that But they're all produced at the same time, so it's yeah. not a So I think that's issue. acetoacetate is yep. the one that will react to the urinalysis. Okay. So if you were to have positive ketones in your urinalysis, can you just say that again, what that would suggest? All right. So positive ketones could be no glucose. You're on a keto diet, so high proteins, high fats, uh, keto supplements, or no insulin. Would it be fair to just to say you are... Just in a high amount of fatty acid metabolism. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's the basis of it because all roads lead to Rome and that's what that is referring to. Now, I was, supposed to, I was supposed to look this up. Apparently, pregnancy will also give you uh, high ketones. But I couldn't think how. Maybe because of the insulin blunting that occurs in pregnancy? Yeah, I'd, I should have looked it up. Who knows? Who knows? We're just guessing. Um, okay, should we move on from ketones? Yes. Blood? Red blood? Red blood cells? Erythrocytes? Hemoglobin? Myoglobin? Yeah, I think the last two. So this test, even though it's sort of seen as red blood, uh, it's actually measuring something called peroxidase activity. Uh, And so peroxidase uh, is important to take hydrogen peroxide and turn it into a more volatile sort of uh, molecule like a free radical. And red blood cells, or hemoglobin, funnily enough, and myoglobin, which is a type of hemoglobin, has peroxidase activity. They can do this. So simply put, if you've got hemoglobin or myoglobin... and Present in the urine. Present in the urine, and it's lysed, it's split, split open, the peroxidases are released. And then they can react with the enzymes within this test to tell you whether you have lysed red blood cells that are present, right? So it could be an indication of erythrocytes, red blood cells, hemoglobin, which yeah. is a component of red blood yeah. cells, or myoglobin, which is the muscle equivalent of hemoglobin. Okay. Is, does that make sense? Yep. yep. All right. What, what do you want to say about this? Oh, just the... So technically we shouldn't have... We should have a negative result here to yep. be considered normal. Why? Well, we, we shouldn't have these products within our urine. Because? Uh, specifically blood. Well, it's uh, I would imagine 
myoglobin and hemoglobin? Are they too big to go through the filtrate? No, I think hemoglobin and myoglobin get filtered, but they get reabsorbed. But oh, but okay. but erythrocytes that can that can contain hemoglobin yeah, they shouldn't is be, too big. They're too big, so they shouldn't be passing through the filtration membrane. Yeah, and so uh, usually, from my understanding, the, the most common things that would lead to a presence in um, uh, you know blood, mm-hmm. a, p- a positive um, outcome here would suggest that there's probably a uh, something happening in the urinary tract itself. Yeah. So downstream. A, like a stone, which would cause um, injury in the ureter. So that's from the kidney to the bladder. So the stone is scraping down the ureter on the way of trying to be excreted. And as you'd imagine, if you've got a, a stone that's scraping down a small pipe, it's going to be causing significant injury and that would lead to probably bleeding. Yeah. UTIs, so that's any kind of urinary tract infection from urethra, bladder, maybe even higher. Uh, and then if you had maybe malignancies or some issues going on with the urinary tract as well, that would cause bleeding. So you say mainly the positive results for red blood here being hemoglobin, myoglobin, erythrocytes would be downstream of the filtration membrane. Yeah, I mean you can have, I think, nephritic syndrome where you have problems with the actual um, the glomerulus itself, if that is damaged, that sieve that shouldn't be allowing things through has been inflamed mm. significantly and it starts to lead, let things through like albumin proteins or actually red blood cells, then then you would get a positive test. Yeah. But I think it's more to do with you've got something down in the tract. Yeah, and y- you can get, um, because I'm quite, again, I'm quite sure that haemoglobin and myoglobin do get filtered but get pulled back into the body, uh, if you have undergo excessive exercise, um, you can have this in your urine, but it should be transient, right? It shouldn't be any longer. Oh, that would be myoglobin, right? Forty-eight hours. So myoglobin predominantly it's so for like rab- rhabdomyolysis. Right. So this is where, so you can get rhabdomyolysis through intense exercise or through a crush injury, for example, where it physically damages the muscle. Regardless, both are physically damaging the muscle, and it, the oxygen carrying component the myoglobin sort of sheds off into the bloodstream really high quantities of it uh, instead of being in the muscle because it's damaged and then it gets filtered through and there's too much to get pulled back into the body and it comes out in the urine so again exercise and crush injuries can do this well like i said direct damage to that filtration membrane and then in these cases that you might actually see a change in color in the urine as well if it was excessive enough yeah very true um interestingly so you can get because this test measures the peroxidase activity and peroxidase is an oxidizing agent. Now, that means it um, takes electrons, right? So, oxidizing, take electrons. So, any oxidizing agents can actually cause false positives. So, there are some bacteria that have their own oxidizing agents, even peroxidases like this. So, you could have a bacteria that gives you a false positive because it has its own peroxidase but it doesn't mean you've got red blood cells in your urine. You can have hypochlorite as well, which is an oxidizing agent and is present within your body. So there are some false positives that can occur. You can even get false negatives. So let's just say you are peeing out hemoglobin or myoglobin, but it comes up as a negative result on the test. This can happen if you have too many reducing agents, which are the opposite of oxidizing agents. Oh, okay. yeah. So one takes electrons, one gives electrons. Mm. So if you've got too many reducing agents, um, for example, like 
vitamin C, that's a reducing agent, uh, it can give you a false negative because it's sort of neutralizing the effect of any peroxidase that's been released from the erythrocytes or myoglobin that's present in the urine. So you should really stop that um, vitamin C drip that you're on to prevent COVID. The one that's in me right now? Mm. Yeah. Whoops. Look, Trump told me to do it. Okay. Uh, is that everything for blood? That's everything for blood. So protein? Proteins, buddy. Okay. We're nearly there, everyone. An hour in. And uh, we've only got a couple left. So we know what proteins are. I think an important point here is proteins are negatively charged. And that's important because the filtration membrane at the glomerulus has three membranes that things need to pass. First of which is the endothelia, which is the epithelia that lines the blood vessels of the glomerulus. Uh, they let things through that are really small, things like has to be less than 70 nanometers in diameter to get through. And so some proteins can get through. Mm -hmm. In actual fact, if a protein is less than 20,000 Daltons, that's its molecular weight, it can get filtered. So some proteins are too big for this. But many proteins can get filtered through the blood vessel. Yep. But underlying every blood vessel is connective tissue called basement membrane. Yeah. And that's filled with collagen, which is negatively charged. And that repels the proteins. So the basement membrane is the main structure of the filtration membrane at the glomerulus that stops proteins getting through. Yeah. And this is one reason why when you have inflammation of the glomerular membrane like glomerulonephritis, it yeah. can let too many proteins yeah. through. And that's nephrotic syndrome, I think. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's attacked, that specifically collagen 4, I think is attacked in some um, hypersensitive conditions where... Um, it's either directly attacked by antibodies or mm. there's a immune complex that kind of gets stuck in there and that causes the filtration pores to be bigger and yes. then you start to pass proteins and maybe blood through. Yeah, exactly right. But that's not the only thing that can cause excessive proteins from being in the urine. So if we, if we start most proximally and move down, so we start at the filtration membrane, it could be damage of that connective tissue or you could just have a really high pressure at the afferent yeah. arterial right so from a pathophysiological cause i've got there's three main mechanisms that cause protein in the urine all right yeah let's have a listen so one is at the glomerular level yep one's at the tubular level yep and the other one's an overflow yeah okay okay so just to take a step back we will a normal person should have well it's normal to have between 80 to 150 milligrams worth of proteins in your urine per day. All right. Okay. Now, the majority of, well, it's kind of between albumin, about 30% of albumin of that protein will be albumin. 30% will be globulins, yeah. like immunoglobulins. And then 40% is actually tissue that just falls off your um, nephron. Specifically, oh, okay. I think it's called uromodulin, and that's specifically a glycoprotein in the loop of Henley. Oh, okay. So that just falls off. I didn't know that. Um, I guess all the time. Yeah. And that's just 40% of the protein that you will urinate out comes from that source. But the others are albumin and globulin, which are yeah. important carrier molecules. And they're in plasma. Yeah. Okay, so then what would cause you to have high amounts? So if it's a glomerular issue, that's what we spoke about just then with the, the filtration slits and so forth. Glomerular nephritis. It, so you could have IgA um, nephritis or just a glomerular nephritis or some issue with like diabetes where it just damages the that filtration mm. ability. Um, 
it just increases the permeability for proteins. And this is usually a higher amount of protein or proteinuria, um, aminoglobulinuria, I think is one. Yep. And so that usually exceeds three grams of this oh, of wow. protein a day. Okay. That would probably lead to the frothy, the frothy urine mm. that you saw. That we spoke about. Um, that I saw. So that's more to do with nothing's really affecting elsewhere in the body. It's just the filtration yeah. is greater and more things are passing through. The next one is a tubular dysfunction. So this is a failure of the nephron to reabsorb. So these are the ones that you spoke about. Well, you do have the ability to reabsorb proteins and stuff all the time. But if, if your tubular cells are damaged, then you will start to... Um, Leak proteins from Leak them. proteins. And the, because the protein, it's not a dysfunction with the glomerulus, it's a, a reabsorption issue. That means the proteins that are in the urine are a lower molecular weight. Yeah. Okay. And uh, it's it's less amount, so it's usually under two grams of protein being excreted. All right. And then finally, you have your over, overload. So this is where you exceed the reabsorption capacity. So you kind of push through too many. So these would have to be proteins that are small enough to get through the filtration, but there's just too many of them. So a condition, a common condition that would lead to this would be a cancer, blood cancer, multiple myeloma, which causes dysfunction of the immunoglobulins. And that would lead to you pushing through too many of these proteins into your run and that exceeds the reabsorption capacity. Mm. And then you just pee them out. Or it could be high pressures at the glomerulus. So the afrinarterial could be under a higher pressure than normal due to something like right-side heart failure, which is a common cause. Because uh, what happens, how would right-side heart failure increase the pressure at the glomerulus? I guess it backs, 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 backs. Yeah. But I, yeah, I never thought of it like that. Mm. So it just backs up and mm. the pressure increases and then you have overflow. So And that doesn't mean just your auto-regulation of your arterials is just exceeded. That's right. So inflammation, fever, glomerulonephritis, um, increased pressure, heart failure, leakage, the epithelia, UTIs, all these types of things can cause protein being present in the urine. Okay. Nitrites. Okay, so the last two... Is this the last two? No, we've got nitrites, leukocytes, then bilirubin and urobilin. Oh, urobilin. Can we do those two first? Uh, if you want, yeah. So bilirubin and urobilinogen. How so did you want to talk about this? Because I've got a way of talking about it, but it may not cover what you want. Well, I think by and large, this is all wrapped, a bit wrapped up with hemoglobin and the breakdown of red blood cells. It definitely is, yeah. So red blood cells, as we spoke about many times, will only live for a certain amount of days. 120 uh, days? Yeah, 120, 180. I think 120. Somewhere in those ballparks. Yeah, I think 120. So they live for that long, but, and usually the, the, the organ that kills them off is a spleen because it just puts them through this kind of process that they need to squeeze through this maze of blood vessels. And if they are too old and dysfunctional, they can't fit through it anymore. And then they have macrophages in your um, spleen that just break it up and then want to recycle all the parts. One part of the, the part that you want to recycle is heme. Okay. Now that is not water soluble. So it's what we call unconjugated bilirubin. Okay. So this part wouldn't have an effect with the urinalysis. So if hypothetically speaking, if you were to just uh, have a lot of red blood cells being killed off at this point, um, the unconjugated, because it needs to bind to albumin, it wouldn't be able to get out of, out of your kidney in an 
unconjugated form. So this is not going to affect... Get out of your kidney or you mean get filtered by your kidney? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I meant, sorry. So the, so basically to get rid of this bilirubin, you need to conjugate it. So you need to send it to the liver to be processed through a couple of steps to conjugate it, which basically means make it more water-soluble. So you're saying, sorry, you're saying red blood cells die, go to the spleen, spleen releases... They die in the spleen. They die in the spleen, it releases the heme, yeah. which then turns to bilirubin. Yep. Which then goes, un, it's unconjugated. It's unconjugated, which means it's not water-soluble, so it goes to the liver... And well, with with albumin because that's its transport protein. Yep, and the liver conjugates it. Correct, right. through a couple of steps. So the hepatocyte will go through a couple of steps, and now it's conjugated, so it's more water soluble. All right. But in the liver, the only real way to get rid of it is to pop it off into your bile. It goes into your bile, which means it goes where small intestines. Yep, and then from there, um, your bacteria in your gut can play around with it a bit mm. and then one one way it can play around with it is to make it back into a, a slightly uh forget how it's modifies it but anyway it makes it into urobilogen yep. which means it can be reabsorbed in your gut back into your blood so now this goes back into your blood okay a water-soluble version of the bilirubin and this and this is urobilinogen correct all right and this, a normal amount of secretion per day is mm-hmm. approximately between 0.2 and 1 milligrams per 100 mils. Okay. So, so that a, a normal person would excrete that amount. Yeah. Okay. So you're saying that when you do a dipstick test for bilinogen, oh sorry, for bilirubin or, or and urobilinogen, you're basically doing an indirect measure of how many red blood cells have been broken down by the spleen and by the liver and by the small intestines. Yeah, and reabsorbing the small intestines, yeah. All right. So does that then mean that doing this test, if you've got high levels... Of urobilogen? Of urobilinogen or bilirubin, it's going to be an indication of too many dead red blood cells? Yep. So if you were to go through um, hemolysis, so too much red blood cell killing... Yeah. Okay, um, eventually it would fil- filter through the liver and then increase the amount that's going excreted from the liver into the intestine, mm-hmm. which will then, just by default, increase the amount of urobilogen then put back into the blood. Okay, so usually if you had high amounts of hemolysis, urobilogen ev- eventually will go up as well. Okay, so any kind of hemolysis like anemia, hemolytic anemia, or malaria or something would eventually cause an increase in. Uh, urobilogen but it's but it's important to note because you've got hemolysis at that point if you were to take someone's blood they would have high amounts of bilirubin right which sometimes would equate to going yellow that's jaundice Mm -hmm. okay but remember before it goes to the liver it's unconjugated so when we do the bilirubin test in the urinalysis that's not going to go up because that that the only bilirubin that you're going to see in the urinalysis is conjugated yeah true okay true so do you know what I mean? Yep. So if you were to have... It's, it's only an indication of conjugated bilirubin, which is what the liver needs to do. So it it is a, a an indication of both red blood cell death, but also liver function. Yeah. Right? So if you've got liver disease, you're going to see an alteration in this conjugated bilirubin or urobilinogen. Well, the urobilinogen, um, the, the, where you would see it to be low, 
would be if you had a biliary obstruction. So you're not getting it into the... gallstone the, or something. Yeah, it's not getting into the intestine. Gotcha. So you got if you're not getting any in your intestines, that means your bacteria is not making any... That's, that means you're not reabsorbing it. That means your, your abilogen is going to be low. Cool. Where if it's high, it's usually indicative of hemolysis. So what I think about when I think of these, the tests for bilirubin and urobilinogen, for urinalysis at least, is that... It indicates something about red blood cell breakdown, indicates something about liver function, indicates something about bile production, and indicates something about bile ducts and bile movement. And that pretty much sort of covers, it might be if you've got changes high or low, it might be an indication that there's something wrong with one of these things. Yep. All right. Yep. Cool. So that's that's your abilogen. Do you want to, we've basically done bilirubin at the same time. Yeah. The un- a, they both indicate the same thing, basically. So the only thing to add is the the normal bilirubin is none. Mm. Okay, um, when you would see an increase of conjugated bilirubin, okay, that would indicate again you've got a bil a, a biliary obstruction, and so it's backed back 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 into the liver and then spilled back into the blood, and so now you've got a conjugated bilirubin in your blood. Perfect. Okay. Let's finish with nitrites and leukocytes. So these are this is actually probably the simplest ones to go through in regards to amount of information. Uh, nitrites. I thought we were going to have another uh, fire alarm then, but uh, no, it's another building. All right, nitrites. Here's the thing: your body produces nitrates, but it doesn't produce nitrites. So what's the difference? Uh, the, there's an A in nitrates <laughs> and there's an I in nitrites. Bacteria can convert nitrates to nitrites, certain types of bacteria. And so if you've got nitrites present in your urine, it's telling you that there's bacteria present at some point in that urinary tract that's converting nitrates to nitrites. And that's what it's an indication of. Specifically? Gram-negative bacteria. Now, it's also the least sensitive test of the whole yeah. urinalysis, but it can. it's basically telling you, do you have a bacterial-based UTI? Yep. Right? Okay. That's, that's pretty that's, much it. That's good. Yep, yep. And then leukocytes. And, and a good one for that would be E. coli. Yep. And, and I wonder if E. coli is uh, just because a common UTI is um, a GIT. Oh, based cool. from, yeah. yeah, from the uh, rectum. Yeah. From, yeah. Leukocytes, white blood cells. So, so the leukocyte esterase. Yes. So, so this is an enzyme, right? Yeah, that's the enzyme it is basically picking up. Again, yeah. it needs to pick up enzymes. And I think this is the longest... This is, You need to wait two minutes for this one. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, basically, anytime you have some form of itis or inflammatory event somewhere in your urinary tract, whether, it go bees from, whether it's at the kidneys, the ureters, the bladder or the urethra, any form of itis will result in inflammation and can result in neutrophils being mm. released. Because they're usually the first white blood cell on the scene of acute inflammation. Exactly. And those neutrophils will, being a leukocyte, contain the, the esterase and it can be picked up. So it's basically just telling you, look, you've got neutrophils at some point throughout this tract that's been released. Uh, it may be an indication of inflammation. The question then is what might be the cause of that inflammation? And again, it might be bacterial infection and a UTI. Yeah, the good one here is if you were to have a positive leukocyte esterase but a negative nitrate, that would indicate a non-infective... Negative nitrate. Nitrate. That would indicate a non-infectious inflammatory state. Mm, 
Yes, but, yes, yeah, absolutely. So just a couple of things here. Um, so UTI is obviously one of the big ones or any, even if you had blood in the urine, in the blood there's probably going to be a white blood cell, some white blood cells, so that would be mm. neutrophils, they're the most abundant, so therefore you're probably going to get a positive test here. But one of the biggest causes of false positive for this test, and probably also the nitrite, is going to be the, the contamination. So if there was to be the urine that would pass over um, skin or um, uh, genital parts on the way on the way out, yep. because there's going to be flora on there and so forth, it yeah. may contaminate it. Yeah. Yep. So that's the biggest cause of a false positive in these two tests. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Is that that's that's, that's it for me, mate? Okay. I've, I just want to add a couple of final points about trying to pull a lot of things together and what would it may may mean and therefore what could be done further because to refined because nothing none of this is in, none of this is truly informative by itself right that's the point you're making yeah. is that you can combine a couple of these results to give you some specific clues as to what to investigate and you're going to tell us now yeah okay so start with what we just did then so if you were to see a positive finding with the leukocyte esterase and the nitrite Okay, what did we say that could be an in indication of? UTI. UTI, so... Which stands uh, for urinary tract infection. I don't know if we classify that, but let's just say. So probably the best test to be definitive here would be to take some urine and then go and send it off to pathology for a microscopic analysis and a culture. So why do you think I peed in your mug? So you could take that urine, put it into a Petri dish and see what grows out of it. Your mug is a Petri dish. <laughs> okay, so that's one. Another one, if you were to have a positive glucose, so glycosuria, what would you think, Mike? Uh, well, you've either just ingested a lot of sugar or you're a diabetic. Okay. That's not so managing it very well. Diabetes mellitus. So what would be a test that could be done to confirm this? Uh, what you could do, uh, blood glucose measurement. Yep. Uh, and you can do fasting blood glucose measurement. Uh, but you can also have a look at the ketones as well if it's unmanaged. It's unmanaged, but how could you also assess where, whether the glucose, um, the um, the blood glucose levels has been high for a longer time? You'd do a fasting blood glucose level. You could do a HbA1c. Oh, yes. Yeah. So yes, that yes. gives an indication of how long it's three been. months worth. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So going back, if you were to have positive glucose and a positive ketone what will that's and and also a yes. low urine ph oh okay so it would tell me that uh the i've got no glucose or the glucose is mean isn't being used uh, as an energy substrate so ketones are being made this happens when there's not enough insulin or if somebody is intentionally not eating glucose and producing a lot of ketones uh and ketones uh, the keto acids, so they produce hydrogen ions. Uh, and so you can have an acidosis, which then reduces the blood pH. Yeah. So it could tell you that you're an unmanaged diabetic or you are a very strict keto dieter. Yeah, but then you wouldn't have glucose in there. Oh, you in said there is glucose. Yeah, glucose. Sorry, you're right. You said yeah. there's glucose in the urine. So you, yeah. absolutely. So it's, yeah. you are simply a, a, an unmanaged diabetic. Yeah. So you would. You, your strong suspicion is the person's got DKA, which is a, a medical emergency. Diabetic but, ketoacidosis. But then, uh, probably the best thing to confirm that would be a ABG or a, a VBG. And can I just say that, uh, generally speaking, people are on the keto diet 
don't produce uh, large quantities of hydrogen ions like uh, an unmanaged diabetic would. Okay. Now, what about if we have raised specific gravity and proteins? Uh, I would say that you've got a lot of proteins in your urine and it's increasing the specific gravity. Well, and that could be caused due to a number of reasons. Give me, give me a, an estimation. So why you would have excessive amounts of protein in urine? Uh, you could have increased pressure at the filtration membrane, like we spoke about before. You could have damage to the filtration membrane, like glomerulonephritis. Uh, you could have uh, some inflammatory event anywhere down the tract. Uh, you could be uh, exercising a lot, which is releasing a lot of proteins. So it could be any of those things. Yeah, so it, I was just hoping that you were going to say something. <laughs> <laughs> it was suggestive that it could be some kid, kidney injury. So this is where you, you'd then go further as investigation to look at kidney function. Right. So urea, creatinine, electrolytes. You may also do some analysis of the... Um, of the urine under the microscope to, to look at what proteins are coming through, if it's albumin or the Globulin smaller ones. or anything yeah. else. Then finally, uh, blood. Blood in the urine. Yeah, which is by itself. Yep. Um, again, damage to the filtration membrane or UTI or some form of direct injury well, or well, with tumor. The, with the blood, when it's stone. what are the three things it could be? Because, as in, like, what are the three parts that would give you a positive blood? Uh, hemoglobin, myoglobin, or erythrocytes. Yeah, so you would want to look at under the microscope to see which one are they. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, you could just do a culture to see if it's caused by a UTI. Yep. Um, you may ex uh, look for glomerulonephritis, and if it's maybe from a stone, you could do a scan or a scope if you think it's coming from the bladder. All right. So there you go. Wonderful. Look at that. One minute, 20 seconds pretty much. Uh, good job, Matthew. I uh, hope everyone enjoyed that. Uh, we did go through the year analysis, which I think is pretty important. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to say, Matthew? Because the only thing I would like to say... You need to get say, a new mug. <laughs> that's for sure. Well, I'll probably pee in that one too. If you want to contact us, um, well, we've got a website. You probably should know that, Dr. Matt. Dr. Mike. Didn't you update it? Yeah. So it's the website address is simply Dr. Matt, Dr. Mike. D-R-M-A-T-T-D-R-M-I-K-E.com.au. We've got our YouTube videos there. We've got our podcast episodes there. Uh, but you're already accessing our podcast episodes. So you're probably using a platform to do that. If you are using iTunes, for example, please give us a five-star rating and tell us how awesome we are. Or if six. Uh, not possible, but if you think we're worth less than five, um, just shut up and just don't say anything and uh, keep listening and <laughs> tell <laughs> your friends. I'm sure they won't do that. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, you can contact me on Instagram at Dr. Mike Todorovic, also Facebook, also Twitter, same thing. Matt is at Dr. Bartox, but he never uses any of those things, so don't even bother trying to contact Matt. If you want to send us an email at uh, no, it's gubiosciences at gmail.com. Uh, I've got a backlog of emails I need to get back to people about. So if you've sent me an email and I haven't responded, I do apologize. It's there. I just need the time to respond. Apart Thank from that, we're done. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 